0: Father, you have indeed invited us onto holy ground. And through your Son and his Spirit, you have made us a way for us to stand on that ground. And so we come at your invitation into your presence, asking you to do for us what you alone can do. Reveal yourself to us, we pray, that we may be changed more fully into your image for the glory of your name. Lord, in your mercy. Amen, please be seated. Hear these words of David one more time. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. the beginning of Psalm 103. Uh, you might want to open up your text, your Bibles in the, the uh, seats in front of you, turn to that Psalm. Uh, it is indeed one of my favorites. Um, and when I say that, I actually I found myself saying that a lot this week, and I went, why is this one of my favorites? What makes it a favorite of mine? And it occurred to me uh, that is one of the few psalms uh, that never fails to trigger me. I don't have to work at having a response to this psalm. I just have to read these opening verses, and I have response. <laughs> it comes innately to me out of this text. I don't have to work at it, it just When I read these words, I remember a 17-year-old boy coming to experience forgiveness for the very first time, and it changed his life. I remember a 26-year-old young man finally learning to find the courage to lay down the lordship of his own life, and that too changed his life. Of a man in his mid 40s uh, finding the, re- the joy of a renewal after a moral failure. And that too changed his life. When I read these words, those memories just flood back into my experience. When I read these words, it reminds me how life-transforming the grace of God really is. And it triggers my own experience of thanksgiving and joy. It's a favorite. We stand on holy ground when God triggers us through his word. Now ironically, uh, this has been one of my favorite psalms for a long time, but in 30 years of preaching, I have never preached on it. And so I thought, today is the day when I do that. And so again, I'm going to ask you to open up the text. I just want to walk through this. It is a marvelous thing. There is so much more than simply the opening trigger for David. I think David was triggered by these things. Let's take a look at what he says. Note that it is indeed a psalm of David, and it, it, it really is an invitation to those who are listening to him. And the appropriate response of receiving the blessings of God, says David, is to bless God in return. That's just part of the deal. When you are blessed, you want to say thanks for the blessing. And so you return that blessing. So that's what he says. He says, he talks to himself and says, Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. You, soul, you do this now. I need to do this now. And he says, and I want to do it with all that I am and all that I have. With all that is within me. Every aspect of my being. My body, mind, soul, heart. You name it. All of me needs to learn how to bless this one who has so richly blessed me. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless him for being who he has revealed himself to be. The story of the burning bush, which is why this psalm is set today. Because that's where the name, the Lord's name, was revealed first to his people. Bless him for being who he is. And then he goes on, but also bless him for what he has done. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. Forget not all of his benefits. David simply picks up on the basic principle of the scriptures, that you and I come to know God only as he acts on our behalf. God reveals himself in the act of redeeming us. That's what we learn from the burning bush, is it not? God comes down to Moses to reveal himself, to give of his name to this man because he is about to redeem his people. If God does not act, if God does not speak, we do not know and cannot come to love, this one. So David says, yes, Bless him for who he is, and we know who he is because of what he has done and done for us. It's a remarkable thing to think about, but God has indeed revealed himself to us, even as he has acted for us, all of his benefits. And then what are those benefits? Well, he lists them, at least a number of them. He says, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like an eagle's. Now, I used to think that that was simply a random list, that David is saying, well, what are the benefits? Well, there's this, there's that, there's that over here. Who knows? There's so many. But as I looked at it this week, I went, you know what? This is not a random list. This is somewhat a sequential list and, indeed, a comprehensive list of the act of redemption. It really is. It's remarkable that we think of David as, as a poet, but he is a deep theologian. This, he says, is what God has done for us. This is what we have benefited. And listen to it again. He says, God is the one who forgives all your iniquity. The beginning of redemption is our experience of forgiveness. God deals with our sin And he tells us that he's dealt with our sin. And when we hear that news, we know we are forgiven. We experience his forgiveness. That God somehow has broken through the alienation that our sin has caused. Our isolation, our cutting off. From Him, the source of our life. God, David says, the first benefit is that He has found a way to forgive us. And therefore has ended the isolation, ended the alienation. We are brought back into His presence. Wonderful news. Right? Wonderful news. It begins with our experience of forgiveness. We know we are on holy ground. We are brought back into the presence of this holy God. But he goes on. He says, God then heals all of our diseases. He heals all of our diseases. I'm quite sure that David was thinking of physical diseases, that flows from sin, because he really believed that they were intricately connected. But I have a feeling what he's saying here is, is that God not only heals and forgives our sins, but then he heals us from the corrupting nature of sin. Because that's what sin does. Sin not only alienates us from God, cuts us off from his presence, but it corrupts us. It wrecks us, and we know that. Think of the ravages of addiction, what it does to the mind, body, and soul. Think of what what sexual immorality does, again, to the body. STDs are real things. Think about what greed does, what anger does to the body as well as the mind and the soul. Sin corrupts that which God has made. So he must not only forgive us, he must heal us from that corruption. And David says one of the blessings of God is he does that. He not only forgives us, but he heals us, cleanses us from that corruption. Wonderful gift. But David goes on to say, God also redeems your life from the pit. And this is the third great truth, uh, difficult truth about sin. It not only alienates us from God, it not only corrupts us in our own mind, body, and spirit, but it inevitably enslaves us. Because sin is not simply my personal choice or my personal failing. Sin in the scriptures is the power of evil. It is an external power that has power, exerts power, exercises power over us who are complicit with it through our own sinfulness. So David says the, great, the third great benefit that we receive from God is he not only forgives us, he not only heals us, but he redeems us from the pits. He breaks the power of sin over our lives. Right? David did not quite know how God would do all of this. His greater son is the answer. But he says this, this is what God must do if we are to be brought back into his presence. He must find a way of breaking the power of sin over us while at the same time finding a way to forgive us who are complicit with that power. And in the cross of Jesus Christ, he has done Three great benefits. He forgives us, he heals us, he redeems us from the pit. But there's more. He says God crowns us with steadfast love and mercy. And goes on to say, and satisfies us with good. When God deals with sin by forgiving, healing, and redeeming, he sets up the renewal of our vocation. He enables us to be crowned once again as stewards of his creation. Having dealt with Genesis 3, we can go back to Genesis 1 and 2. That's what he's saying. God's act of redemption issues in the renewal of human vocation. We can again be crowned with steadfast love and mercy. We can be the ones we were created to be. And when we begin to act on that, we are satisfied with good. (laughs) We find ourselves living in the way we were created to live. Remarkable. David says, These are the benefits that we have received. Forget not all of these benefits. It's a glorious thing. Forget them not. Do we know them in ourselves? Have you received these benefits? Do you know it? Can you tell a story about these things? Forget them not, he says. Well, it almost seems too good to be true. And so you've got to know, how do we know it's true? Well, David goes on and he talks about, uh, he makes what I would call a confessional statement of faith. He goes back to say, This is what God has revealed himself to be to our people in the past, to Moses especially. And I'm just saying now I have found this to be true for myself. So he goes on and says, look, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made his ways known to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's the confessional statement that comes out of the history of Israel. It begins with the burning bush, and it ends with God revealing himself in person. He passes by, his glory passes by Moses, and he sees his back, and it is the Lord who says at that point in time, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. David says, this is who God has revealed himself to be, and guess what? I have experienced it. I know that this is true. It was true for Moses, and Moses says, it will be true for you. I have in my own lived experience, experienced this one who is revealed as this God. He goes back again to the confessional statements of his people. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to make what I would call a personal statement in verses nine through eighteen. He goes into the third person here. And he says this to begin with, he will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sin. Now how does David know that? He's encouraging those who are reading the psalm or singing the psalm, because it would be sung in Israel. How does he know this? He's saying, "Look, this could be true for you." And the only reason I can come up with is because it has become true for David. I have a feeling that he is writing this psalm because he has just come out of one of those amazing experiences of being forgiven. It may have been after his time with Bathsheba in Psalm 51, I don't know. It may have been after some kind of other falling or failing in life. He speaks a lot about his failings and then he prays them, puts them into song. He's doing the same thing here. David has come out of a period of life where he had indeed sinned and has now experienced forgiveness, healing, and redemption. He finds himself recrowned and being satisfied with his role within the story of creation. And he says, I have found this to be true for myself. It can be true for you. He is saying that so we might hear that and experience it with him. He goes on to say, as high as the heavens are above you, so great is his steadfast love with those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord has shown compassion to his children. You and I, he says, can know this for ourselves. It can be true for us even this day. But note that even as David issues this invitation, sort of makes this argument, he defines our rightful response to the blessings of God. He defines the contours of our renewed vocation. Take note of this. Three times in these few verses, David speaks about those who fear him. That phrase, those who fear him. In verse 11, he says, So great is his steadfast love on those who fear him. It's not on those who do not, he says. Or verse 13, as a father shows compassion to to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And again in verse 17, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting, again, on those who fear him. Three times in four verses, six verses, And then he defines what that fear looks like in verse 18. To those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. So there, he says, is the essence of our rightful response. We are to, out of these experiences of blessing, to fear the Lord. And then the contours of our renewed vocation, we are to keep his covenant and to do his commandments. And those two things go together. It is the fear of the Lord that alone will lead to the keeping of covenant and the doing of commandments. The wisdom literature makes this very clear when it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Because it's the beginning of new creation. It's the fear of the Lord, this coming back into this right relationship with this one who has made us and now has redeemed us, that allows us the opportunity to keep his covenant and to do his commandments. The fear of the Lord leads to, and only can lead to, the keeping of covenants and the doing of commandments. It's the fear of the Lord that is crucial. Absolutely. Fundamentally crucial. If we are to fulfill our vocation, we must develop and deepen this fear. Now, please note I said to fulfill our vocation, not to restore our vocation. Again, it is the act of God, the redeeming act of God, that restores vocation. Only that act. The act which simultaneously breaks the power of sin and forgives us is the act that comes to us and renews that vocation. But if we are going to live into it, now we need to know the fear of the Lord, which allows us, enables us, fuels us in keeping the covenant and doing his commandments. So how do we do that? Well, I keep on coming back as I was reflecting on this to again that very first exhortation at the beginning of the Psalm, right? Forget not all his benefits. Forget not all benefits. All his benefits. If you remember what he says, he's he's talking about uh, the keeping of covenant and remember to do his commandments. Fascinatingly, he brings memory back twice, the beginning and then near the end. If we do not forget all his benefits. We have a shot at remembering to do his commandments. That's what he's saying. It is the remembrance of our experience of blessing that awakens the fear of the Lord. Think about that. When you remember the moments you have been forgiven. When you remember the moments that you experience healing, when you remember the moments that you know that the power of sin has been broken in your life, you are in awe of the one who has done these things for you. Are you not? That's where the fear of the Lord is birthed is in our experience of the grace of God that comes through the blessings of God. David says, do not forget those moments. Actively remember those moments. And you will not forget to do the commandments of God. That's the link. That he gives to us. I don't know about you, but I um, don't make a formal time in my week to remember those things. God has to trigger me through Psalms like 103. And I'm going, why don't I do that? Why not? Why not carve out one night a week, maybe Saturday night? Wouldn't that be a great night? To say, let's spend some time remembering all the benefits that I have received. Thinking about one of those times when God invaded my life by grace and did something for me. Maybe we need to build this into our way of life so that we have a shot at fulfilling our vocation, right? It's a simple thing. But coming out of my Lenten uh, disciplines, I'm going to start adding that to my rule of life. It's, I think, a helpful piece. David ends the psalm. I'm going to end this with him. I think, again, it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing to me. He makes another confessional statement. He says, look, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. That's just a fact of life, folks. And David just states the fact. The Lord who created all things has redeemed all things. He reigns over all things. The Lord has established his thrones in the heavens. And then David goes to say, and everything that he has made now must acknowledge that fact, and participate in blessing him for it. And so he goes, bless the Lord, O you angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. He talks to the seraphim. He talks to the archangels. He says, you who are the greatest and most powerful of all the God's creatures, you bless this one. That's why you've been created. He goes on to say, bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Speaking about the stars and the sun and the moon, these things which were worshipped by the pagans, but he knows them to be created things of the creator for our best. He says, you too bless this one who has made you. He goes on to say, bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Talking about the earthly realm now and the created order. And finally he says, and involve me as well, Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. I take my place within this story, within this created order. This one who has made all things is worthy of our praise. And my vocation is simply to join with all the others to say, bless the Lord. Bless the Lord, all oh my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Forget not all his benefits. Start there. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.